Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Good evening, children of the night. During the time that I've been the host of Tales to Terrify, it has been predominantly a labor of love. Compensation or perks have been few and far between. 
added to that very short list of bonuses I've received from this podcast, right behind the time that Blue Apron sent me a bunch of food for doing an ad for them, is a novel from J.D. Buffington. He sent me a gratis copy of his book, In the House of In-Between, and I warned him that if I didn't care for it or didn't think that any of Tales of Terrify's listeners would really find it up their alley that I wouldn't mention it at all. He graciously understood those terms. Well, Children of the Night, I enjoyed it quite a bit, and I'm happy to be able to shine a bit of a spotlight on a listener's work. I'll tell you a bit about it and think of a few things to point out that I really did enjoy without spoiling the story. In the House of In-Between is a haunted house story. Early on, it is introduced that there is a possible scientific explanation for the mysteries of the house and perhaps other hauntings, but the author doesn't bog down the story by trying to show off how his invented quantum particle works with string theory or anything like that. Just enough for you to get where this is going. As a result of this take on things, it does give a different take on an otherwise traditional haunted house story. The story also has a variety of vantage points and slices of time, in which it jumps around a bit. I have taken on a few books that move from first-person perspective to first-person perspective, or shift around in time, leaving me lost, confused as to what I'm supposed to be understanding. I found none of that disorientation as I read through this. The thing that I appreciated in the book is that the haunted house doesn't really feel like the active horror of the book, instead more of the setting. The horrific elements seem to be the mental or emotional damage of the characters that are either caused by, or more frequently exacerbated, by the strange happenings in the house. I'm not quite sure how to articulate this, but there is a rather minor character in the book in which their emotional trauma is alleviated by the haunt. Yes, alleviated, and I'm not sure if I've ever read that done in a ghost story before. Thank you, J.D., for sharing your story with me. And Children of the Night, check it out. I think you'll find it an enjoyable read. Links will be in the show notes. Let's hear some fiction. Nate Southard is the author of Porcelain, Bad Dogs, Will the Sun Ever Come Out Again, Red Sky, Lights Out, Just Like Hell. When he isn't writing scary stories, he's probably cooking. Usually Thai food or fried chicken, both favorites of mine as well. He loves fried chicken. Nate lives in Austin, Texas. Listen with me to Nate Southard's In the Middle of Poplar Street, originally appearing in Dead Set, April 2010 from 23 Hours Publishing. Jenny stood at the upstairs window, looking down at them all and trying not to cry. She had burst into tears several times in the past, and her mother always scolded her for it, telling her the thing in the street didn't deserve her sadness. 
Jenny couldn't help it, though. The people were just so mean to the thing in the street. People had different names for the thing they'd staked to Poplar Street with pieces of metal rebar. At first, the people on the news had called them reanimated. Later, most people decided they were called undead. More than once, Jenny had heard the church people on TV call them demons. She knew there used to be a lot of them, with people running around and saying the end of the world had come. But then the people took care of most of the reanimated, or undead, or whatever. And now only a few remained here and there. The one in the street below her window was the only one she had ever seen in real life. The only one that wasn't a jumpy image on the television, some reporter or other talking in either hushed tones or panicked shouts. Most of the time, she couldn't even see the thing in the middle of Poplar Street through the mass of people standing around it. Jenny watched as the people laughed and pointed. A man in greasy coveralls was kicking the creature, laying into it with his boots and waving for the crowd to cheer him on. A man with thin silver hair patted him on the back, and a couple of teenage girls giggled in horrified amusement at the spectacle. Jenny decided she would never giggle when she became a teenager. That was something mean girls did, and she didn't want to be a mean girl. She didn't know why everybody thought picking on the thing was so much fun. Every game she had ever played had grown old eventually, but beating the reanimated never seemed to bore the people in her town. And the poor thing was trapped anyway, staked through its shoulders and legs, and even once through the back of its neck. It couldn't hurt anybody. A couple of men had chopped off its arms at the elbow shortly after it had come back from the dead. Somebody else had kicked off its jaw so it couldn't bite anybody. All it had now were two rotted stumps and what remained of its head. It was harmless. The only thing the reanimated could do was let out this sound that was either a moan or a scream, depending on what everybody was doing to it at the time. Without its jaw, the thing just wailed in this weak, ugly way that made Jenny think of a dump truck groaning to a stop. Jenny pressed her hand to the glass, feeling the tears well up in her eyes. Staring through a haze of sadness, she hoped her mom didn't catch her. She'd probably get a lecture for watching the people again, and she really hated it when her mom lectured her. There was always a lot of you-don't-know-any-betters and it's-for-your-own-goods, and Jenny just wasn't in the mood for that. Maybe she should leave the window. She knew it was the easiest thing. It was a sure way to keep from getting caught, but she just couldn't understand why the people did what they did. And she hoped that if she kept watching, she could maybe make some kind of sense out of it. Not that she'd made any sense of it yet. The man in the coveralls was peeing on the reanimated now. Jenny couldn't see him do it, not really, but she could tell from the way he was standing and the way the whole crowd was laughing like they heard a really funny joke. She could imagine the creature's reaction, the way it might wave around what was left of its arms as it tried to keep the pee from hitting its face. She felt so sorry for it. She didn't even know if he... It had feelings anymore, but she still felt sorry. 
At least they weren't using the fire hose. The people did that sometimes. Their small town only had what Mom called a volunteer fire department. And every once in a while, one of the firemen would bring down a hose from the station, while everybody watched, making little giggles and almost shaking with excitement. The firemen would hook up the hose to a hydrant across the street and blast the thing with water. The creature would go crazy, wrestling against the water and rebar while the people cheered. Usually the crowd kept spraying the hose for half an hour or more, until people wanted to get back in and kick the trapped reanimated again. Of course, the firemen didn't bring out the hose much anymore. The last couple of times... A bunch of skin and stuff had come off of the creature. One piece had hit a little girl, and everybody freaked out. Jenny hadn't seen the girl since. She was probably freaked out, too. Suddenly, the blind slammed shut an inch away from her nose. She gasped, jumping backwards and screamed when she found her mother standing right behind her. I told you not to watch that. I wasn't. Don't lie to me. Jenny turned around, wrapping her arms around her mom's waist. The woman smelled like cookies, and Jenny breathed the scent in deep. She loved her mom, loved her more than anything in the world. But she didn't see why the woman hated the thing in the street so much. I'm sorry, Mom. I didn't mean to lie to you. I just feel so bad. Jenny looked up to see her mom her face framed by stringy black hair, shake her head. Don't you feel bad for that thing, Jenny. It doesn't deserve it. You should know that. But he... Don't you butt me, Jenny. And it's not a he, okay? It's not a real person. Not anymore. I don't care how miserable that monster out there looks. I want you to remember that it wants to kill you, me, and everybody else in this town. If it ever gets off of all that metal, it's going to do just that. Then why don't the people just kill it? Her mom turned away then, looking around the room, examining the walls, and doing her best to keep her eyes hidden. When she finally spoke, Jenny thought her voice sounded weird, a little bit softer than usual. Jenny, you know how the reanimated people used to be real people, right? Yeah. Well, the real people in this town went through a lot of trouble because of the reanimated. Remember that thing that happened at the school? Well, that truck driver was probably trying to get away from a bunch of those monsters, and that's why he crashed. A lot of people were killed by the ones who came back, not just here, but all over. And the real people were very afraid for a very long time. In a lot of ways, they're still scared. And sometimes scared people get mad. But there's not really anything to be afraid of anymore, Mom. Most of the dead people are gone. Jenny's mom smiled. I know, honey. But people don't stop being scared right away. It takes time. But why do they get angry? Scared people get angry because they don't like being afraid. And they think it's somebody else's fault that they were so scared in the first place. That's why they do stuff like what they're doing down in the street. It's because they hate that they're so scared. 
and they want to feel like they've made it all even. I guess, I guess they just need to convince themselves they're in control again. She breathed in her mom's scent, trying to make sense of what she had said. Yeah, people were afraid. She had been afraid too, but the dead people were mostly gone now. There wasn't any reason to be scared anymore. Sometimes people just didn't make any sense. You understand, honey? Jenny looked up at her mom. She smiled and hugged her tight around the waist. I do, mom. I'm sorry. It was the first time she could ever remember lying. So, her mother said, what do you want for dinner? Jenny pretended to think it over. Cheeseburgers. I don't have any hamburger thawed out. We can have some tomorrow if you want. Is that okay? Sure. Can we have spaghetti tonight? Yeah. Good. Let's have spaghetti. Mom smiled. Okay. And I'll set some hamburger in the fridge to thaw. Thanks, Mom, Jenny said as she hugged her mother again. I love you. I love you too, honey. Her mom walked to the door, turning back to give Jenny a sad smile. Stay away from the window, okay? I don't want you upsetting yourself. She nodded, gave her mom a thumbs up. As she made the gesture, she realized how stupid it looked, how silly. Mom left the room. A second later, Jenny turned to peer through the blinds. Jenny pretended to sleep. The covers pulled up to her chin and her cheek against the pillow until the noises from the street disappeared and all she could hear was her mother's soft snoring. She waited a while longer, her eyes roaming the bedroom, and then climbed out of bed. The hardwood floor was cold beneath her feet, but she tried to ignore it. The air outside would be colder, the pavement ice against her soles. But she couldn't risk putting on her shoes or coat. Any unnecessary noise might wake up her mother, and then she'd have some explaining to do. She crossed the hall and stepped to the window pulling back the blinds the slightest bit. Poplar Street stood dark and empty, the way she had expected to find it. Squinting through the night's shadows, she could make out the sickening garden of rebar, the twisting figure it pinned to the pavement. The people always left the reanimated alone at night, and they never bothered leaving a guard either. They knew it was harmless. Without its arms or jaw, it was just a thing a punching bag, or something more pitiful. Jenny shook her head, thinking about the people, and then stepped away from the window. She made it to the kitchen without creaking any of the floorboards and pulled the refrigerator open as quietly as she could, her hand darting inside to shut off the interior light. Heart thumping behind her ribs, she paused to listen to the house remaining still until she decided her mother was still asleep. The hamburger sat on the bottom shelf still wrapped in plastic. Jenny removed it from the fridge and tucked it under her arm, closing the door behind her. Almost done. The other item she needed was under the sink. She remembered last seeing it on the right-hand side, and she hoped Mom hadn't moved it. Searching under the sink would be so loud it might wake the entire neighborhood, not just her mother. Luckily, her fingers closed around the object right away, 
She breathed a sigh of relief, and her heart calmed the slightest bit. Moving slowly, careful to keep the hinges from squealing, she opened the back door and left the house. The winter air slashed at her as she rounded the house and stepped onto the cold concrete of Poplar Street. The dead person staked to the street like some kind of weird science project looked up, sensing her approach, and moaned. Quiet, Jenny said. You have to be quiet or I'll get caught. The reanimated didn't understand. It continued to groan, the sound both ominous and pathetic as she stepped closer. She finally stood over the creature. It could only wheeze in excitement, staring up at her and the objects in her hands. Without a word, she set one of the objects down so she could unwrap the hamburger. The reanimated dead man caught the scent of blood and meat and began to thrash against its metal bounds. She placed the hamburger on the ground and then pushed it forward with her foot until it was within reach of the creature's ruined mouth. It looked up at her, eyes wide and glazed, yet somehow thankful. Then it dove into the meat. It worked with its dead tongue, doing its best to lap up the raw beef, and paused only to groan in pleasure before returning to its meal. Jenny watched it eat, and she wondered what it might have looked like when it was alive. She could tell it had been a man. Maybe he had been handsome, or maybe ugly. What about the man's family? Had he been married? Had kids? Maybe a little girl around her age? Nobody in town seemed to care. They just used the thing in the street as something to beat on and torture. Did it really make them feel safer? How could it? Monster, Jenny said, and she leaned forward to spit on the dead man. The glop of saliva struck the back of the thing's head and began to trickle down its ruined scalp. Jenny expected the thing to look up at her or try to shrink away or something. Anything. But the reanimated didn't do a thing but work at the hamburger, its moans growing louder as it managed to eat more and more. She drew in a deep breath and held it. The smell of hamburger mixed with the clean, empty smell of winter. But beneath it all, a rotten smell lingered and she knew it was the miserable thing staked to the pavement. Disgusting. Baring her teeth, her face morphing into an angry sneer, she picked up the other object and stepped forward. Slowly, she raised the hammer over her head, her fingers curling tighter and tighter. The reanimated continued to ignore her, not noticing the growl in her throat or even her presence until she swung the hammer as hard as her arms allowed, slamming the metal against the creature's shoulder. A screech split the quiet night as the reanimated's head arched away from the pavement, flesh and bones scraping against rebar. Jenny caught a scream in her throat as terror burst up from her stomach and lungs. She scrambled away from the thing, making a trio of hurried steps across the pavement before her ankles twisted and she landed hard on her bottom. Then she scurried like a crab, forgetting the hammer, until she reached the sidewalk and the grass beyond. Its moans chased her, and soon she began crying, wiping at her eyes as she drew her knees up under her chin. I'm sorry, she whispered. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Shivering, she watched the reanimated and waited. 
It continued to groan its pain into the street for several long moments. And she watched the houses for any lights flicking on or doors opening. No one appeared to notice, however. And after a few minutes, the reanimated returned to the package of hamburger. The night filled with slopping sounds and groans of pleasure. Slowly, Jenny returned to her feet and started across the street. She stopped long enough to retrieve the hammer from where she had dropped it, and then a few more steps took her to the reanimated. I'm sorry, she told it again. It ignored her, instead concentrating on the last few clumps of raw beef. I don't know who you were, she said. You probably don't deserve this, though. Jenny raised the hammer over her head once more. She eyed a spot on the back of the reanimated skull. The wind picked up, and Jenny held her breath. That was Nate Southard's In the Middle of Poplar Street, as read by Michelle Kane. Michelle is from the Kansas City metropolitan area. She has a dulcimer and a bodren that she doesn't have time to play because she spends her time working in a cube farm and being a mom to her six-year-old son and their 11-year-old Labrador. And, of course, narrating stories when she has the chance. Thank you, Michelle. Our second story of the night will be a classic. W. W. Jacobs is now remembered for his macabre tale, The Monkey's Paw, published 1902 in the collection of short stories, The Lady of the Barge, which we'll be hearing this evening. However, the majority of his output was humorous in tone. His favorite subjects were marine life, men who go down to the sea in ships of moderate tonnage, said Punch, reviewing his first collection of stories. Many Cargoes, which achieved great popular success in the publication in 1896. Michael Sadler described Jacob's fiction thus. He wrote stories of three kinds, describing the misadventures of sailor men ashore, celebrating the artful dodger of a slow-witted village, and tales of the macabre. Many Cargoes was followed by the novel The Skipper's Wooing in 1897 and another collection of short stories, Sea Urchins, 1898, set the seal on his popularity. Among his other titles are Captain's All, Sailor's Knots, and Night Watches. The tale of the last reflects the popularity of perhaps his most enduring character, the Night Watchman, on the wharf in Wapping, recounting the preposterous adventures of his acquaintance Ginger Dick, Sam Small, and Peter Russet. These three characters pockets full after a long voyage, would take lodgings together determined to enjoy a long spell ashore. But the crafty inhabitants of Dockland, London, would soon relieve them of their funds, assisted by the sailors' own fecklessness and credulity. 
Jacob showed a delicacy of touch in his use of the coarse vernacular of the East End of London, which attracted the respect of such writers as P.G. Wodehouse, who mentions Jacob's in his autobiographical work, Bring On the Girls, written with Guy Bolton, published in 1954. The stories which made up many cargoes had a varied previous serial publication, while those in sea urchins were, for the most part, published in Jerome K. Jerome's Idler. From October 1898, Jacob's stories were being published in The Strand, an arrangement which lasted almost to his death and proved him with financial security. Jacobs died on the 1st of September 1943 at Hornsey Lane, Islington, London. Listen with me to W.W. W. Jacobs' The Monkey's Paw. One. Without, the night was cold and wet, but in the small parlor of Laburnum Villa the blinds were drawn and the fire burned brightly. Father and son were at chess, the former, who possessed ideas about the game involving radical changes, putting his king into such sharp and unnecessary perils that it even provoked comment from the white-haired old lady knitting placidly by the fire. Hark at the wind, said Mr. White who, having seen a fatal mistake after it was too late, was amiably desirous of preventing his son from seeing it. I'm listening, said the latter, grimly surveying the board as he stretched out his hand. Check. I should hardly think that he'd come out tonight, said his father, with his hand poised over the board. Mate, replied the son. That's the worst of living so far out, bawled Mr. White with sudden and unlooked-for violence. Of all the beastly, slushy, out-of-the-way places to live in, this is the worst. Pathways a bog, and the roads a torrent. I don't know what people are thinking about. I suppose because only two houses on the road are let, they think it doesn't matter. Never mind, dear, said his wife soothingly. Perhaps you'll win the next one. Mr. White looked up sharply, just in time to intercept a knowing glance between mother and son. The words died away on his lips, and he hid a guilty grin in his thin gray beard. There he is, said Herbert White, as the gate banged loudly and heavy footsteps came towards the door. The old man rose with hospitable haste, and opening the door was heard condoling with the new arrival. The new arrival also condoled with himself, so that Mrs. White said, Tut, tut and coughed gently as her husband entered the room, followed by a tall, burly man, beady of eye and rubicund of visage. Sergeant Major Morris, he said, introducing him. The Sergeant Major shook hands, and, taking the proffered seat by the fire, watched contentedly while his host got out whiskey and tumblers and stood a small copper kettle on the fire. 
At the third glass, his eyes got brighter, and he began to talk, the little family circle regarding with eager interest this visitor from distant parts, as he squared his broad shoulders in the chair and spoke of wild scenes and doughy deeds, of wars and plagues and strange peoples. Twenty-one years of it, said Mr. White, nodding at his wife and son. When he went away, he was a slip of a youth in the warehouse. Now look at him. You don't look to have taken much harm, said Mrs. White politely. I'd like to go to India myself, said the old man, just to look around a bit, you know. Better where you are, said the sergeant major, shaking his head. He put down the empty glass and, sighing softly, shook it again. I should like to see those old temples and fakirs and jugglers, said the old man. What was that you started telling me the other day about a monkey's paw or something, Morris? Nothing said the soldier hastily. Leastways, nothing worth hearing. Monkey's paw, said Mrs. White curiously. Well, it's just a bit of what you might call magic, perhaps, said the sergeant major offhandedly. His three listeners leaned forward eagerly. The visitor absent-mindedly put his empty glass to his lips and then set it down again. His host filled it for him. To look at, said the sergeant major, fumbling in his pocket. It's just an ordinary little paw dried to a mummy. He took something out of his pocket and proffered it. Mrs. White drew back with a grimace, but her son, taking it, examined it curiously. And what is there special about it? inquired Mr. White, as he took it from his son, and having examined it, placed it upon the table. It had a spell put on it by an old vakir, said the sergeant major, a very holy man. He wanted to show that fate ruled people's lives, and that those who interfered with it did so at their sorrow. He put a spell on it so that three separate men could each have three wishes from it. His manner was so impressive that his hearers were conscious that their light laughter jarred somewhat. "'Well, why don't you have three, sir?' said Herbert White cleverly. The soldier regarded him the way that middle age is wont to regard presumptuous youth. "'I have.' he said quietly, and his blotchy face whitened. "'And did you have the three wishes granted?' asked Mrs. White. "'I did,' said the sergeant major, and his glass tapped against his strong teeth. "'And has anybody else wished?' persisted the old lady. "'The first man had his three wishes, yes,' was the reply. "'I don't know what the first two were, but the third was for death. "'That's how I got the paw.' His tones were so grave that a hush fell upon the group. "'If you've had your three wishes, it's no good to you now, then, Morris,' said the old man at last. "'What do you keep it for?' The soldier shook his head. "'Fancy, I suppose,' he said slowly. "'I did have some idea of selling it, but I don't think I will. It has caused enough mischief already. Besides, people won't buy.' They think it's a fairy tale, some of them, and those who do think anything of it want to try it first and pay me afterwards. If you could have another three wishes, said the old man, eyeing him keenly, would you have them? I don't know, said the other. I don't know. He took the paw and, dangling it between his forefinger and thumb, suddenly threw it upon the fire. White, with a slight cry, stooped down and snatched it off. Better let it burn, said the soldier, solemnly. If you don't want it, Morris, said the other, give it to me. I won't, 
said his friend doggedly. I threw it on the fire. If you keep it, don't blame me for what happens. Pitch it on the fire again like a sensible man. The other shook his head and examined his new possession closely. How do you do it? he inquired. Hold it up in your right hand and wish aloud, said the sergeant major, but I warn you of the consequences. Sounds like the Arabian Nights, said Mrs. White as she rose and began to set the supper. Don't you think you might wish for four pairs of hands for me? Her husband drew the talisman from his pocket, and then all three burst into laughter as the sergeant major, with a look of alarm on his face, caught him by the arm. If you must wish, he said gruffly, wish for something sensible. Mr. White dropped it back into his pocket, and placing chairs, motioned his friend to the table. In the business of supper the talisman was partly forgotten, and afterwards the three sat listening in enthralled fashion to a second installment of the soldiers' adventures in India. If the tale of the monkey's paw is not more truthful than those he has been telling us, said Herbert, as the door closed behind their guest, just in time for him to catch the last train. We shan't make too much of it. Did you give him anything for it, father? inquired Mrs. White, regarding her husband closely. A trifle, he said, coloring slightly. He didn't want it, but I made him take it, and he pressed me to throw it away again. Likely, said Herbert, with pretend horror. Why, we're going to be rich and famous and happy— Wish to be an emperor, father, to begin with, then you can't be henpecked. He darted round the table, pursued by the maligned Mrs. White, armed with an antimacassar. Mr. White took the pawn from his pocket and eyed it dubiously. I don't know what to wish for, and that's a fact, he said slowly. It seems to me I've got all I want. If you only cleared the house, you'd be quite happy, wouldn't you? said Herbert, with his hand on his shoulder. Well, Wish for two hundred pounds, then. That'll just do it. His father, smiling shamefacedly at his own credulity, held up the talisman, as his son, with a solemn face somewhat marred by a wink at his mother, sat down at the piano and struck a few impressive chords. I wish for two hundred pounds, said the old man distinctly. A fine crash from the piano greeted the words, interrupted by a shuddering cry from the old man. His wife and son ran toward him. It moved, he cried, with a glance of disgust at the object as it lay on the floor. As I wished, it twisted in my hand like a snake. Well, I don't see the money, said his son as he picked it up and placed it on the table, and I bet I never shall. It must have been your fancy, father, said his wife, regarding him anxiously. He shook his head. Never mind, there's no harm done, but it gave me a shock all the same. They sat down by the fire again while the two men finished their pipes. Outside the wind was higher than ever, and the old man stared nervously at the sound of a door banging upstairs. A silence, unusual and depressing, settled upon all three, which lasted until the old couple rose to retire for the night. I expect you'll find the cash tied up in a big bag in the middle of your bed, said Herbert, as he bade them good night and something horrible squatting up on the top of the wardrobe watching as you pocket your ill-gotten gains. He sat alone in the darkness, gazing at the dying fire and seeing faces in it. The last face was so horrible and so simian that he gazed at it in amazement. It got so vivid that, with a little uneasy laugh, he felt on the table for a glass containing a little water to throw over it. 
His hand grasped the monkey's paw, and with a little shiver he wiped his hand on his coat and went up to bed. 2. In the brightness of the wintry sun next morning, as it streamed over the breakfast table, he laughed at his fears. There was an air of prosaic wholesomeness about the room which it had lacked on the previous night, and the dirty, shriveled little paw was pitched on the sideboard with a carelessness which betokened no great belief in its virtues. I suppose all the old soldiers are the same, said Mrs. White. The idea of our listening to such nonsense. How could wishes be granted in these days? And if they could, how could two hundred pounds hurt your father? It might drop on his head from the sky, said the frivolous Herbert. Morris said things happen so naturally, said his father, that you might, if you so wished, attribute it to coincidence. Well, don't break into the money before I come back, said Herbert as he rose from the table. I'm afraid it'll turn you into a mean, avarice man, and we shall have to disown you. His mother laughed, and, following him to the door, watched him down the road, and, returning to the breakfast table, was very happy at the expense of her husband's credulity, all of which did not prevent her from scurrying to the door at the postman's knock, nor prevent her from referring somewhat shortly to retired sergeant majors of bibulous habits when she found that the post brought a tailor's bill. Herbert will have some more of his funny remarks, I expect, when he comes home, she said, as they sat at dinner. I dare say, said Mr. White, pouring himself some beer. But for all that, the thing moved in my hand. That I'll swear to. You thought it did, said the old lady soothingly. I say it did, replied the owner. There was no thought about it. I had just... What's the matter? His wife made no reply. She was watching the mysterious movements of a man outside, who, peering in an undecided fashion at the house, appeared to be trying to make up his mind to enter. In mental connection with the two hundred pounds, she noticed that the stranger was well-dressed and wore a silk hat of glossy newness. Three times he paused at the gate and then walked on again. The fourth time he stood with his hand upon it and then with sudden resolution flung it open and walked up the path. Mrs. White at the same moment placed her hands behind her and hurriedly unfastened the strings of her apron, put that useful article of apparel beneath the cushion of the chair. She brought the stranger, who seemed ill at ease, into the room. He gazed at her furtively and listened in a preoccupied fashion as the old lady apologized for the appearance of the room and her husband's coat, a garment, which he usually reserved for the garden. She then waited as patiently as her sex would permit for him to broach his business, but he was at first strangely silent. I was asked to call, he said at last, and stooped and picked up a piece of cotton from his trousers. I come from Ma and Megan's. The old lady stared. Is anything the matter? she asked breathlessly. Has anything happened to Herbert? What is it? What is it? Her husband interposed. There, there, mother, he said hastily. Sit down and don't jump to conclusions. You've not brought us bad news, I'm sure, sir. And he eyed the other wistfully. I'm sorry, began the visitor. Is he hurt? demanded the mother wildly. The visitor bowed in assent. Badly hurt, he said quietly. But he's not in any pain. Oh, thank God, said the woman, clasping her hands. Thank God for that. Thank... She broke off suddenly as the sinister meaning of the assurance dawned upon her, and she saw the awful confirmation of her fears in the other's averted face. 
She caught her breath and turned to her slower-witted husband, laying her trembling old hand upon his. There was a long silence. He was caught in the machinery, said the visitor at length in a low voice. Caught in the machinery, repeated Mr. White in a dazed fashion. Yes. He sat staring blankly out at the window and taking his wife's hand between his own, pressed it as he had been wont to do in their old courting days nearly forty years before. He was the only one left to us, he said, turning gently to the visitor. It is hard. The other coughed and, rising, walked slowly to the window. The firm wished me to convey their sincere sympathy with you in your great loss, he said, without looking round. I beg that you will understand that I am only their servant and merely obeying orders. There was no reply. The old woman's face was white, her eyes staring, and her breath inaudible. On the husband's face was a look such as his friend the sergeant might have had carried into his first action. I was to say that Ma's and Megan's disclaim all responsibility, continued the other. They admit no liability at all, but in consideration of your son's services, they wish to present you with a certain sum as compensation. Mr. White dropped his wife's hand, and rising to his feet, gazed with a look of horror at his visitor. His dry lips shaped the words, How much? Two hundred pounds was the answer. Unconscious of his wife's shriek, the old man smiled faintly, put out his hands like a sightless man, and dropped a senseless heap to the floor. 3. In the new huge cemetery, some two miles distant, the old people buried their dead and came back to a house steeped in shadow and silence. It was all over so quickly that at first they could hardly realize it and remained in a state of expectation as though of something else to happen, something else which was to lighten this load, too heavy for old hearts to bear. But the days passed and expectation gave place to resignation, the hopeless resignation of the old, sometimes miscalled apathy. Sometimes they hardly exchanged a word, for now they had nothing to talk about, and their days were long to weariness. It was about a week after that that the old man, waking suddenly in the night, stretched out his hand and found himself alone. The room was in darkness, and the sound of subdued weeping came from the window. He raised himself in bed and listened. Come back, he said tenderly. You will be cold. It's colder for my son, said the old woman, and wept afresh. The sound of her sobs died away on his ears. The bed was warm and his eyes heavy with sleep. He dozed fitfully and then slept until a sudden wild cry from his wife awoke him with a start. The paw, she cried wildly, the monkey's paw. He started up in alarm. Where, where is it? What's the matter? She came stumbling across the room towards him. I want it, she said quietly. You've not destroyed it. She said hysterically, Why didn't I think of it before? Why didn't you think of it? Think of what? He questioned. The two other wishes, she replied rapidly. We've only had one. Was that not enough? He demanded fiercely. No, she cried triumphantly. We'll have one more. Go down and get it quickly and wish our boy alive again. The man sat up in bed and flung the bedclothes from his quaking limbs. Good God, are you mad? He cried aghast. 
Get it, she panted. Get it quickly and wish, oh, my boy, my boy. Her husband struck a match and lit the candle. Get back to bed, he said unsteadily. You don't know what you're saying. We had the first wish granted, the old woman said feverishly. Why not the second? A coincidence, stammered the old man. Go and get it and wish, cried his wife, quivering with excitement. The old man turned and regarded her, and his voice shook. He's been dead ten days, and besides, he... I would not tell you else, but I could only recognize him by his clothing. He was too terrible for you to see then. How now? Bring him back, cried the old woman, and dragged him towards the door. Do you think I fear the child I have nursed? He went down in the darkness and felt his way to the parlor and then to the mantelpiece. The talisman was in its place, and a horrible fear that the unspoken wish might bring his mutilated son before him ere he could escape from the room seized upon him, and he caught his breath as he found that he had lost the direction of the door. His brow cold with sweat, he felt his way round the table, and groped along the wall until he found himself in the small passage with the unwholesome thing in his hand. Even his wife's face seemed changed as he entered the room. It was white and expectant, and to his fear seemed to have an unnatural look upon it. He was afraid of her. Wish, she cried in a strong voice. It is foolish and wicked, he faltered. Wish, repeated his wife. He raised his hand. I wish my son alive again. The talisman fell to the floor and he regarded it fearfully. Then he sank trembling into a chair as the old woman, with burning eyes, walked to the window and raised the blind. He sat until he was chilled with the cold, glancing occasionally at the figure of the old woman peering through the window. The candle-end, which had burned below the rim of the china candlestick, was throwing pulsating shadows on the ceiling and the walls, until, with a flicker larger than the rest, it expired. The old man with an unspeakable sense of relief at the failure of the talisman, crept back to his bed, and in a minute or two afterwards the old woman came silently and apathetically beside him. Neither spoke, but lay silently listening to the ticking of the clock. A stair creaked, and a squeaky mouse scurried noisily through the wall. The darkness was oppressive, and after lying for some time screwing up his courage, he took the box of matches and striking one, went downstairs for a candle. At the foot of the stairs the match went out, and he paused to strike another, and at that same moment a knock, so quiet and steady as to be scarcely audible, sounded on the front door. The matches fell from his hand and spilled in the passage. He stood motionless, his breath suspended until the knock was repeated. Then he turned and fled swiftly back to his room and closed the door behind him. A third knock sounded through the house. What's that? cried the old woman, starting up. A rat, said the old man in shaking tones. A rat. It passed me on the stairs. His wife sat up in bed listening. A loud knock resounded through the house. It's Herbert, she screamed. It's Herbert! She ran to the door, but her husband was before her, and catching her by the arm held her tightly. "'What are you going to do?' he whispered hoarsely. "'It's my boy. It's Herbert,' she cried, struggling mechanically. "'I forgot it was two miles away. 
What are you holding me for? Let go. I must open the door. For God's sake, don't let it in, cried the old man, trembling. You're afraid of your own son, she cried, struggling. Let me go. I'm coming, Herbert. I'm coming. There was another knock, and another. The old woman, with a sudden wrench, broke free and ran from the room. Her husband followed to the landing and called after her appealingly as she hurried downstairs. He heard the chain rattle back and the bottom bolt drawn slowly and stiffly from the socket. Then the old woman's voice strained and panting. The bolt, she cried loudly, come down, I can't reach it. But her husband was on his hands and knees groping wildly on the floor in search of the paw. If he could only find it before the thing outside got in. A perfect fusillade of knocks reverberated through the house, and he heard the scraping of a chair as his wife put it down in the passage against the door. He heard the creaking of the bolt as it came slowly back, and at the same moment he found the monkey's paw and frantically breathed his third and last wish. The knock ceased suddenly, although the echoes of it were still in the house. He heard the chair draw back, and the door opened. A cold wind rushed up the staircase and a long, loud wail of disappointment and misery from his wife gave him courage to run down to her side and then to the gate beyond. The street lamp flickering opposite shone on a quiet and deserted road. That was W. W. Jacobs' The Monkey's Paw, as read by our own Seth Williams. Seth Williams is a narrator and an associate editor right here at Tales to Terrify. He enjoys listening to fiction podcasts and audio drama. He also shares life with a husband, dog, and cat. Thank you, Seth. That'll be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below, and don't forget to like us on Apple Podcasts. Our show was produced by our editors Scott Silk, Seth Williams, and Drew Sebastini. Website designed by Josh Leitze and theme music by Diane Severson. Tales to Terrify is distributed under Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 4.0 license. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.
would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.